Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara ong And I'm Ella Doddridge, a second year and, a cent- and an intern for the Center for Politics. And joining us for this conversation is Darren Samuelson, an award-winning journalist reporting and editing from DC since Bush v. Gore. He was a senior White House reporter with Politico and most recently a senior editor with The Messenger. Darren, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Happy to be here. Darren, as a seasoned journalist covering presidential politics and the White House, uh, we want to ask you a really hard-hitting question. Well, how would you characterize this presidential election year versus others that you've covered? Wow. Uh, this is beyond a doubt the most important election of my lifetime and the most important election, I think, of anybody's lifetime in a long time. And I say that not just for any partisan reasons whatsoever. It is just a huge election with just huge stakes in terms of what is next, in terms of which direction the country's going. As as journalism, as a journalist in this era, I mean, we're just, we're dealing with things that are, I say that never happened before. I also say that, what, we're we're 10 months from the election and and who the heck knows what's going to happen between now and November. Um, I mean, just think about 2020 for a second and when the pandemic, you know, just totally changed our lives. Um, and changed everything about politics. So saying that from sitting here right now, knowing what's on at stake legally in particular, and sort of the directions that uh, the country could go with the two different major presidential party candidates and Trump and, and Biden, um, we have a pretty clear contrast. And, and I mean, just in terms of the stuff that I've been overseeing at, at The Messenger and, and now watching closely from afar, uh, you know, the the, the issue of Donald Trump's legal cases and what happens to them, whether he goes to prison or whether he goes to the White House. I mean, that is basically what's at stake in November. Um, that's what voters are going to be asked to basically decide between the messages that are coming from Trump and the messages coming from Joe Biden and, and what we're going to hear more and more of. Who knows exactly where Donald Trump will be, you know, by November in terms of uh, will have will we have had any of the trials or will he be sentenced or um, or what happens really there. So it's, it's so hard to know that, but just at this stage, you know, and then you just add on top of that global affairs, uh, you know, where the United States standing is in the world, um, what place we take with respect to Ukraine and, and the Middle East, um, you know, to everything from Supreme Court justices uh, who could be appointed. I mean, I think it's, it's a pretty darn important election. Um, and yeah, for journalists as well, just gearing up for this, it, it's it's going to be intense. So many things I want to dive in on, uh, and we particularly want to talk with you about the Trump trials because you have been reporting on it so closely. But but just before we go there, you mentioned the role of journalists. What's your best advice for how journalists should be approaching coverage, especially of Donald Trump, um, in, in this election year? Well, I, I, I think it really depends on where you work, for one, um, and what your news outlet is trying to do and, and what you're, you know, how you're trying to operate in this really tough media environment that we live in. Um, you know, so many readers are getting their information from, you know, their little silos, their bubbles. And that is, you know, a challenge that every journalist faces. And, and you know, it's a challenge that people running for office deal with. It's a cha- challenge for people who are trying, maybe who, who, who don't tune in and are also you know, coming to the election late, which is totally normal and totally part of like American governance. But if you're a journalist and you're trying to cover Donald Trump, um, 
you know, I think from my experiences at Politico, my experience at Insider, and now most recently at The Messenger, I mean, I think you have to call a spade a spade every single time. Um, you know, he does push the limits of what is um, is true. And I think a lot of journalists have gotten pretty good at pointing that out um, in terms of, you know, if he says the sky is not blue, I think you have the, the right and, and, and the freedom and you need to say, well, the sky is blue. And I think that is something that journalists consistently have been, you know, faced with that challenge. Um, some of it is just the velocity with which some of the things that you hear, um, you know, as a journalist, you need to pivot off of and 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 um, and choose what to write about. Um, I mean, so much as well in this world of journalism right now is driven by what what readers are clicking on, and and so many news outlets literally have scoreboards on their wall of what stories are resonating in the world. Um, you know, what people are clicking on, on their, on their sites. And when they see people clicking on something, they write more stories about it. That's how journalism industry, that's the business model. And Donald Trump, um, like Sarah Palin before him, uh, when that name is in a headline, it resonates and people will click on it. So, you know, one of the things about Trump, and this has been the case since he came down the escalator in 15, if not way before that, people want to read about him. He is a magnet. He is someone who just, we all just want to know what the heck he's saying. And, uh, you know, that's why CNN put him on air as much as they did in 15 and 16. Uh, you know, you can debate that at, you know, at, you know, ad nauseum in terms of like what that did, but there was a reason people were tuning in. People wanted to watch. And if you are a journalist and you're trying to have a surviving business model, you're going to do what your readers and what your audience wants you to do. And so, you know, it is a challenge to cover Donald Trump. I just interviewed one of my former, now he's brand new former colleague of mine, Mark Caputo, for my podcast um, just yesterday, as we just all, you know, uh, were sent packing from our jobs two days ago. And Mark did a very famous interview with Donald Trump um, at the very start of our publication, The Messenger. Um, and Mark got 30 minutes with Donald Trump. It was an exclusive. Um, it took a lot of work. Mark has been covering Donald Trump for many, many years. We used to work together, Mark and I, at Politico as well. He's a longtime Florida reporter. And Mark got a lot of beef for that interview and for you know the questions that we asked and the things we didn't ask, and uh, for what we you know for what we ultimately wrote about. And Mark's defense, which is, I think people maybe don't necessarily realize it, is you get 30 minutes with Donald Trump and he is a filibuster artist. And so you got to pick your questions that you ask Donald Trump. And if you ask him a question about E. Jean Carroll, you know what he's going to say. You know he's going to defame E. Jean Carroll even more so than maybe he has. And when he does that, you have to, as a news outlet, then decide, do I want to put that on my air? Do I want to, you know, same question and subject as what CNN was grappling with. Do you want in that 30 minutes to make news? Or do you want to like engage in a fight with Donald Trump over, you know, whatever topic it may be? And Mark purposely decided not to ask questions about 2020, about his, some of the legal stuff. And I even sent Mark some questions to ask Donald Trump, hoping Mark would ask them. And he didn't ask them all. You know, uh, I was very in the weeds with some of the questions that I proposed he asked Donald Trump. But Mark is a pro and he asked the questions he did. And Trump made news on a, on a six-week abortion ban in that interview, which was like, big news in a Republican primary where you're trying to get some differentiation between people. And so as a journalist, you always do want to be thinking, whether you're interviewing Donald Trump or someone that you meet in a, you know, at the grocery store, you're trying to get someone to say something that's going to generate a headline. Obviously, 
Donald Trump is a former president. He's a newsmaker. And when you want to get a newsmaker and you only have, whether it be 30 minutes with Donald Trump, you know, on Air Force One or at Mar-a-Lago or, you know, same concept if you're in the hallways of the United States Capitol and you catch a, a member of Congress walking down the hallway, you got two minutes. What are you going to do with that two minutes? Are you going to try and antagonize and ask a question that's going to just send you off in a way that's just not going to be very helpful? You're not going to get the soundbite you need. Or are you going to ask a question that you know is on the topic at hand and might generate news and what your readers want? And so I think that's part of it as well as the advice for journalists is, you know, when you're writing about Trump, you get a chance to talk to Trump. You get a chance to talk to his people, try and get them to make news. Obviously, there's all kinds of challenges of getting people in Trump world who are not authorized to speak for the record to speak. And, you know, I don't even need to go into the world of the viper pits nest underneath Donald Trump. But, you know, that's that's a whole probably separate list of topics and questions maybe you might have about what it's really like covering Donald Trump, because it is one of the more fascinating, unusual worlds that I've ever lived in in the, in the, in the world of journalism. Well, maybe we'll just ask you there. What is it like covering Donald Trump? <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, it is it is unlike anything I've done. And I'm, I mean, I'm a I got my start in sports journalism and I've been an outdoors reporter. I've been a travel reporter, an entertainment reporter, an environment energy reporter for 12 years. I've covered a million things under the sun in the policy world, but covering Donald Trump, it's unlike anything I've ever, ever done before. Um, There's just so many layers to it from, you know, the inaccuracies that he might say to, you know, if he's running for president or if he's in the white house, well, I mean, you even have to kind of differentiate between, when he's running for president and he's a American citizen, Joe Public, like you or you or me, but maybe aspiring for something, and he has a campaign infrastructure with lots of people underneath him. And Donald Trump, as we saw from The Apprentice, which maybe is the best, uh, and I don't, I will not be, I will not admit to watching very many episodes of The Apprentice, but the concept was he played all of his guests off of each other. He had Amarosa fighting with. Oh uh, gosh, Gary Busey. I'm, I'm, I might be wrong on who actually was fighting with who at the time, but he had all of these people underneath him who were competing with themselves to try and become his apprentice. And it was the exact same concept in his presidential campaign in 2016. It is less so that in 2024 because they've learned their lessons per se in 16 and 20. But I mean, that was the 16 campaign was you had all of these people undercutting each other, undermining each other, trying to get to Donald Trump's attention. And that made it really hard to know when you talk to someone in one particular power center, whether they were really speaking for Trump or were they speaking for, you know, their place in the Donald Trump world, because they were all striving for the power, you know, that would come with, in the event that Donald Trump would have won the election in 2016, which he did, you know, a powerful job in his White House and in his administration. And so that's just in the politics of Donald Trump. You move him into a position like president of the United States with what, 16, 17 cabinet agencies and, and, you know, tens of thousands of American government workers underneath them. It gets way more complicated and way more challenging because it's literally that installed on top of the American executive branch of the government. And that, you know, that created a lot more opportunities for journalists because then you suddenly have stories about the Secretary of State Rex Tillerson or the EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt, which creates all kinds of amazing, fascinating little micro, not scandals, micro stories, micro drama lines overseeing, you know, incredibly important parts of American government from the Pentagon to the, you know, to the, to the Labor Department to wherever. So covering the 
the White House and the Trump administration, which I did get to do for three years, um, through a very specific lens, I'll say. My, my coverage of Trump at Politico, I, I was on the White House team there that year, which was those the first three years, which was an amazing cast of teammates who are now all sprinkled at news outlets from the New York Times to the Washington Post to the Wall Street Journal, some of the best journalists in the country on that very first Politico 2016 plus team. Um, but my job was, I was the investigations uh, reporter, so to speak, on the White House team with Josh Gerstein, a, a great uh, reporter who famously got the, you know, the biggest scoop of the world and uh, uh, Roe v. Wade. But um, my job with Josh and, and, and others was we were covering first Trump's financial conflicts of interest as he was becoming president of the United States, leaving the Trump organization. So it was digging into the financial stuff. This was in the early days, long before Letitia James, long before Michael Cohen. This is back when Michael Cohen was still yelling at journalists um, and threatening to beat us up before he became our best friend, um, which gives you a sense of that viper pit that I'm talking about. But, you know, so I was, my, my beat was that, which was fascinating. And I mean, I could take you down another couple lanes of like getting into Mar-a-Lago and, and, and crashing Mar-a-Lago a couple of times and using my my skills to find my way into Mar-a-Lago while he was president. Um, and then, um, and then quickly what ended up happening was, was James Comey gets fired. And then suddenly I become a special counsel expert very quickly. And like, you know, for, for two and a half, three years of that Trump administration, I was literally just covering the Mueller investigation. And I would often joke, you know, like in the 2019 period, 2018, 19, as I was covering the Roger Stone trial or the Paul Manafort trial, was like we were kind of still covering the 2016. It was like the continuing coverage of the 2016 election three years after it was over, which was weird in the sense of I had I was working at Politico at the time and there was a whole 2020 campaign team preparing for the 2020 election. And yet here I was three years later, still trying to figure out what the heck happened uh, in November of 2016. So um, yeah, that's what makes Trump so fascinating is like, again, here we are in 2024 and like we're going to be talking all of 2024 about what happened in 2020, which, you know, is just, again, one of the more historic, unprecedented and parts of where we are right now is, you know, this is we have criminal trials of a major party candidate for president, the nominee, presumptive nominee, who also happens to be the former president of the United States. It just it blows the mind to think about what we're what's ahead in these months ahead just as you were talking and listing off all of the things, all of the events, all of the people, <laughs> it's really mind-blowing and, and mind-boggling what we've been through as, as a country. And then the fact that on top of that, that we, we have such fractured information ecosystems and how some people are getting that news is so vastly different from the way others are getting it. I want to jump in and talk with you about the Trump trials. We are recording on February 2nd. And this week, there was news that just came out um, that Donald Trump's March 4th trial date has been taken off the calendar in the district court in, in D.C. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what that really means and how it could impact other trials that the former president faces. Sure. Uh, so that news kind of broke right as the messenger was going off the air, and I gleefully disconnected my uh, my mind and body for at least 48 hours from, God, I got to tell you, I mean, I was tethered to the court dockets um, and had this amazing system. I don't have access. I think I might still have access to my email at the messenger 
where all of the court docket, you know, all of my pacer alerts and my court listener stuff was coming in. And so that's gone. Um, I'm now starting to recreate it on my own personal account. God, thank God for Court Listener, I will say. If you don't, you know, just a plug for Court Listener, one of the best services out there to follow the federal court docket. Um, so all that said, um, I think we always knew that March 4th trial date was looking like it wasn't going to hold. I think that we've seen the writing on the wall for the last couple of weeks. Trump obviously doesn't want this, this trial to happen until after the election. Um, we're still waiting, as far as I'm aware, on the immunity decision from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals based on my Twitter feed right now. I do not see that decision, though Fannie Willis and the, we could, we'll talk about Georgia, I'm sure, in a second. Georgia will. Fannie Willis has now admitted to the relationship with Nathan Wade um, in a court filing that we were expected to see today. But she is saying that the case should not be dismissed. That's the Georgia case, which is not scheduled for trial yet, um, uh, which uh, Fannie Willis has proposed in August. We were kind of wondering at one point, given the uncertainty in March with the, um, the, the, the D.C. trial, whether Fannie Willis might try and slip in and grab the March time period. But honestly, looking at what's playing out there now, not to mention, I mean, she's got a, a handful with 14 co-defendants. I mean, it's going to be really logistically challenging to get 14 defense lawyers with 14 co-defendants like just finding a room for that big of a group of people. I know they're literally dealing with the same thing in the uh, the Young Thug trial that's happening down there, which also keep in mind, also a Rico case. And also remind, remember it took what, 16, 15 months to find a jury to sit on that case. Like, you know, and that's pretty high profile, but this one's even higher profile. Um, but back to the Chutkin, Judge Chutkin case. I mean, I think whenever we get this DC circuit opinion, you know, very likely Trump loses, but can work the clock with the um, with an en banc review to the whole D.C. circuit. And then he can take it to the Supreme Court. This all, of course, depends on what the D.C. circuit opinion says. And if they they could they could send it straight back to Judge Chuck with instructions, they could do a lot of different things. And there's all kinds of speculation. But I think maybe what it says more than anything is that the uh, the DC trial at the earliest? I think maybe you know at this point I think we're thinking late April, early May, so six to eight weeks of delay, which again, and that's that's kind of fast too if you think about what else they still need to do to get ready because everything has been on hold, um, so all of the motions, all of the other things that are at play are are on hold. So if that gets pushed off, let's just hypothet hypothetically say until the end of April. That still leaves. That's you know. There's there's the sleeper case that we kind of also forget about the Stormy Daniels, 2016 hush money case. Second time we've mentioned Michael Cohen on this podcast, so uh, we probably should drink. Um, but um, I would say that one is probably going to stay. End of March is when that schedule. I think it's March 20, 23rd, 25th is when that trial is scheduled to begin in New York. The consequences if Trump is convicted. Most people do not expect jail time on that one. So um, I, I would imagine that one goes ahead. Um, and then I still can see the D.C. trial happening again in the spring, summer. It would overlap, obviously, with the end of the Republican primary contest, which at that point, Trump will probably be the nominee. And, you know, it could be amazing split screen television of him, you know, accepting the nomination at the um, Republican convention in Milwaukee. I believe it is. And, um, you know, on trial at the same time and maybe becoming a convict in D.C. at the same period. Um, I mean, and I say that about him becoming a convict. I mean, his own lawyers um, 
Uh, I think are anticipating that. I think the legal team is absolutely in Trump world anticipating a, a DC jury will convict him. And you, they, you know, they're, they're telegraphing that by one saying they think the Supreme Court would overturn it. They're telegraphing that by going after the possibilities of what the DC jury will look like. Um, so they're, they're preparing for conviction there. And that's, I mean, also why Trump is running as hard as he is for president so that he can make that DC case go away if he is elected, which I mean, contemplate what that would look like from November of 2024 until inauguration day 25 and those first three, four, five months of his administration. And just how, like, again, like, I don't know that people quite conceptualize the notion of Trump shutting down these justice department cases. I mean, it's a Saturday night massacre concept. I mean, but, but a million times bigger um, because it's, where it is in the process, as opposed to like the Saturday Night Massacre, Nixon hadn't even been indicted yet. I mean, there were in, there was Watergate uh, hearings going on, etc. So, I mean, I, just prepare. For, I mean, uh, apart from Trump coming back to the White House and everything else that his new policies would entail, what he would be doing at the Justice Department to make those cases go away is just kind of again, it's, it will be staggering to see the amount of bloodletting that will take place in that period of time. Um, I'll mention, I guess, quickly, the Florida Mar-a-Lago trial um, is, I, I have a hard time believing that happens in May, given where we are in the process and what Judge Cannon has kind of done um, with a number of the pretrial deadlines. There are a number of really important uh, dates coming up. We've got hearings. We're, we're going to learn the calendar very soon, and it will be overlapping with the D.C. Circuit opinion, but there is a couple of pretrial, and there's a couple of hearings. There's one in New York in the middle of February where we'll learn about the plans for the Stormy Daniel trial. There is a March 1st hearing in Florida where Judge Cannon will spell out more about what's going on with the Florida case, not to mention the DC case. And then obviously then to Georgia where, you know, I'm really, I mean, I think there's a hearing February 15th. It's the same day actually as the New York uh, uh, hearing on the Stormy Daniels case down in um, Georgia is the hearing where Judge McPhee in Fulton County will be hearing the evidence on booting Fannie Willis from the, uh, from the, from the prosecution of Trump down there. So yeah, lots to keep track of. So much to keep track of. And, and I know that Ella has a really great question follow up, but just really quickly, you mentioned that if Trump is, is elected and, and he would shut down all of the DOJ cases, but he doesn't have the authority to shut down the Georgia case. And so some of these revelations about Fannie Willis is sort of seen as an opening by the defense to try to shut down that case because he couldn't um, absolve himself <laughs> from any charges there. Um, you know, do you have any sense of uh, how that might play out? I do. Yeah, we wrote a great, great, great story about that at The Messenger, which sadly no longer exists. <laughs> I, I do have it up on DarrenSamuelson.com. I'm pretty sure that's true. Uh, I, I, I saved all of my stuff in PDF form, and that one's up there. So he actually does. So yes, to answer your question, I mean, he has no power straight up as the president of the United States to stop the Georgia case. That is a state case, and you can't pardon yourself from state crimes. And getting pardoned in the Georgia system, I believe, involves a pardoning board that was appointed by the governor. Uh, of Georgia and Brian Kemp is not exactly the biggest friend of Donald Trump's in the event that we got to the stage of conviction. However, and this is maybe the big get out of jail free card that he does have in Georgia is something called the supremacy clause of the constitution. And it is 
um, it's played out already in court. This is the story that I'm talking about that we wrote about. Um, and it came up in uh, one of the pretrial hearings a couple of weeks ago um, where Judge McPhee asked a question of Trump's lawyers about the supremacy clause of the Constitution, basically asking, well, what happens if Donald Trump is president of the United States? We haven't yet gotten to trial yet. Can we hold a, can we hold a trial with the president of the United States? I mean, the answer is yes, you can, but the, you know, it'll be up to the judge and it'll be up to the Justice Department in such a situation to begin to make the noise that they would make with, a, with an attorney general that is a Trump-appointed attorney general. So they'd be totally taking a very different position than the current Merrick Garland DOJ. But you can imagine if Jeffrey Clark is the attorney general, which would be very weird, not to mention the fact that Jeffrey Clark is you know, co-defendant in Georgia, but you know, one of the 20 possible names I put out there as a possible attorney general in a Trump administration. And he is certainly making a lot of noise as if he could be the AG. But they could then, the Justice Department could tell, you know, they would basically be filing briefs in court in Georgia. And no doubt Trump would be making appeals on this front saying, look, the American public has just made Donald Trump, voted for him. He's the president of the United States. He's got a very important day job. You cannot be pulling him down here to Fulton County to put him on trial day in and day out while he's the president of the United States. I'm sorry. He has the nuclear football. He has, you know, the economy to worry about. He's got all these other things to worry about. And the supremacy clause of the constitution says that, you know, the federal government and the role of the federal government trumps the role of the state government here in this case. And so therefore, you know, and, and they would take this all the way to the United States Supreme Court if we get that far. And this question's never been asked before because we've never had a president of the United States in office or former president charged um, with a crime. The closest would be, I guess, uh, uh, Ulysses was a grant, I think, uh, pulled over for speeding his horse down the road in D.C. So it never happened before. How would these justices rule on this question? I think we'll learn a lot from the 14th Amendment uh, fight. We'll learn a lot if immunity gets to the Supreme Court. We'll learn a lot. Also, on the Georgia front, there's a case that's playing out right now with Mark Meadows, um, which is, I believe, at the 11th Circuit. It's the en banc. So Mark Meadows, former White House chief of staff, is trying to move his state case into federal court as we speak. He has lost every step of the way to now. And so he is trying to get the entire 11th Circuit in Atlanta to overrule the decisions below. He's going to take that to the Supreme Court. We know that because he's hired Paul Clement, the former solicitor general from the Bush White House, to be his lead argument, uh, lead arguer in um, down there. And it's also interesting to note that Jeffrey Clark, the attorney general candidate that I just mentioned a moment ago, who's a co-defendant of Trump's, has also been trying to get his case removed to federal court. He's piggybacking on Meadows. He's actually even asked the 11th Circuit to consider his case at the same time, even though it hasn't moved along as fast. So you have these two other cases where they're making some of these federal officer points, trying to get this before the Supreme Court. And if they can get the Supreme Court to weigh in on that now, it might give us a very strong signal of how they might weigh in on a question of, you know, what happens to Donald Trump if he's elected president? Would they punt all of this as, I guess, the way to think of it until Donald Trump's presidency is over? Um, which would be in, you know, if, assuming he makes the whole four years, it would be in January of 2029. At that point, I think the Georgia case could come back. But I mean, geez, that's that's about a million lifetimes from now. And who the hell knows what our country will look like or what will be, you know, top of mind in 2029 or if people even remember Donald Trump five more years from now. Uh, so 
Yeah, Georgia's in a little bit of a weird place. Um, you know, the speedy trial aspect I thought was so interesting in that. I'll just say, like, because there was going to be those that trial last fall for Chesbro and Sidney Powell. They were using their uh, the speedy trial concept, and then they ultimately pled guilty. No one else is taking that route of um, seeking the speedy trial that a, that a defendant in Georgia is entitled to. So, um yeah, I think I, I mean, I think maybe more than anything, if Biden wins the election, you know, which I think is probably the scenario where these trials do happen. You know, I think like, again, in a scenario where Biden is reelected, any trials that haven't happened, you know, Donald Trump has lost his federal pardon ability, has lost his ability to you know, make these cases go away. And he's not president in January of 2025. And, and at that point, you know, I think you could see a Georgia trial. Um, if it hasn't happened already or if it hasn't been dismissed because of what's going on now or who knows what other wrinkles we're going to see between now and then. So I just want to talk a little bit about what this looks like for voters. So with all of this going on in such an important election year, what should voters look for in the headlines leading up to the general election? It's interesting. I mean, the court cases really, I mean, they matter in this like grand scheme of like what direction do we want America to go? So, you know, I mean, I, everything that we're talking about here is so in the, I mean, it's important beyond compare. Um, trying to break this down for someone who's not tuned in the legal stuff, I bet is probably overwhelming. I mean, again, I've, I've done a couple podcasts recently where I've tried to explain these cases and it's so interconnected and so tangled, it's, it's got to be impossible to, to tune in. So, I mean, you know, at the top line, I just say consume as much news as you can from as many different sources as you can. You know, there are sources on the right, there are sources on the left. As a journalist, as someone who's been doing this for a long time, no matter the topic, I find if I can consume as much news as I can, I tend to figure out, you know, just using my own, you know, North Star where the truth is, because the truth is always in the middle. It's always in the gray complexity. That does not lead to good headlines, I'll say. You know, writing sort of the mishy, wishy-washy stuff in the middle very difficult to put in a headline. You know, if it bleeds, it leads. There's a reason that statement is out there in journalism for as long as it has, like, you know, uh, controversy sells, um, tension sells. I mean, it's the same reason you would want to watch a movie with drama as opposed to something that's, you know, just kind of people, uh, just walking down the street. It's, it's just, there's, there is something inherent in tension. I mean, so again, I, I answered the question that way because I think the legal stuff is super important, but I can completely understand for most voters, it, it can be hard to track. I think for most voters, you're probably looking at the economy. You're looking at your jobs. You're trying to figure out, you know, whether you're going to have a paycheck to, to feed your family and to send your kids to school and, um, you know, whether this country is going to be um, great in 5, 10, 20, 50 years, 100 years, where we're going to be. So, you know, I think, again, it's it's trying to just compare the two the two major candidates. We've got Third-party candidates, obviously, also clamoring to be a part of this election. Just always, I mean, there's been third-party candidates as long as I've been an adult watching politics, and and you know they are very good at appealing to the folks who who tune out. Um, also, you know, I guess I always remember this: is there is a large segment of voters who do not vote, who do not turn out, who you know. I, I remember in at least 2000, 2004, eight, you know, like some a third of American eligible voters do not vote. Uh, Donald Trump was able to find some large number of those people and he got them to the polls in 2016, which really is what one of the huge difference makers in how he upset Hillary Clinton. And, um, you know, I think turnout is always the biggest factor. And, you know, you'll hear this from any political uh, 
expert is Democrats win when they turn out, when, when people vote. Republicans, this is maybe a hidden secret in politics, but you know one of the, the, the keys to Republican politics is tamping down voter turnout. It's, it's discouraging people from voting. It's um, you know making it seem like there's no, you know, there's no uh, difference between the candidates. So why vote? Um, it's just sort of widely seen within the circles of people in politics who, who try and generate turnout at the numbers of presidential campaigns, which is you know in, in state by state and increasingly just two, three, four states that seem to matter, which is beyond frustrating to probably the other forty-six states in the country that would like some attention and love too, but they're, we've, we've kind of gotten to the point now where, you know, they're just fighting over three or four or five states every single four years. So it becomes an election about Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Arizona and Georgia, more than a, a discussion and debate about the entire United States, which is a frustrating aspect, I think, for probably for a lot of voters, especially if you probably, if you live like right next door to Pennsylvania or Wisconsin and Illinois or Iowa, um, or Michigan, well, Michigan is a swing state nowadays, but if you're living in one of those states that's right on the border and you're getting all of those TV ads and all those radio ads and all those digital ads hitting you, but your state is probably red or blue already, but you're getting to see sort of some of that action. Um, that's always like a story as a, as a former and longtime election reporter, you know, I've probably one that I've always wanted to write is like, what's it like to live right across, you know, the Mississippi river from um from a, an important state but you don't get that vote or your vote your vote matters but obviously it doesn't quite matter the same as uh, as uh, someone right in the in the swing state that, that you're probably describing ella she's she's <laughs> from indiana <laughs> which was a swing state there what in oh in obama made it a swing state in 2008 yeah. yes and maybe 12 i can't remember if he won it again in 12 or not yes i think so and then we're back to the red. Well, Darren Samuelson, we are just incredibly grateful to have your expertise and for you to come and, and break down the complexity of these court cases and, and more broadly sort of, you know, what's really at stake as we are, are seeing these court cases in this consequential election year. So thank you so much for the fantastic reporting you have done and will continue to do. And for anyone listening, um, please hire Darren ASAP. <laughs> Thanks for the shout out. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Listeners, there are links to Darren's website and his reporting in the episode notes. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Wigley. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at center number four politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.